I looked at these little girls that I'd see on the street. I'm like, why do you have to go through all of that? All of that unnecessary suffering for what? And maybe to one day unlearn it all? Like, that's just not fair. And so I got very angry and I was studying um, gender at the time, which can make, you know, gender studies can make anyone <laughs> go a bit crazy. <laughs> and so I was just like, oh my God, all these injustices. And anger is a weird thing to spur you into writing a children's book, but that's kind of what happened. <laughs> you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the cello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Growing up, Jessica Sanders never felt out of place, but it was somewhere during puberty she pieced together the only comments she received were about how she looked and being taller than everyone else. That's what was pointed out every single time she met someone. So she began to hate her body. She wanted to be smaller, thinner, shorter. She wanted to fit in with the other girls. She didn't want to stand out and she certainly didn't want another person to comment on how much bigger or taller she was since the last time they saw her. Into years of fad diets, yo-yo weight fluctuations, restrictive eating and that lie we all tell ourselves. I'll be happy when... I lose that last five kilos. Until one day, she realised no matter how many calories she counted, this was her body for life. So she flipped her mindset and decided to embrace who she is and what she looks like and love herself for all that she is. Jess has now written a children's book, Love Your Body, full of the kind of information and body positivity she needed to hear when she was young. Or as she puts it, it's a guide to help young girls avoid the years of self-loathing she endured to get to where she is today. And it's gone gangbusters. Jess followed it up with two more books, one about self-care called Me Time and a follow-up to Love Your Body, but this time for boys, called Be Your Own Man. I've read it to my son and it's a game changer. This is such a vital listen for mums or mums-to-be or anyone who has struggled with dieting. We chat teaching children resilience and gratitude, role modelling body positive talk, equipping kids with tools to encourage positive mental health and why it's so important to bring young boys into the conversation about self-care and self-love. Here's Jess. Jess, welcome to the Lemonade Podcast. Thank you so much for making time for me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's awesome to be here. (laughs) So good. So good. How have you been? We're finally at a stage four lockdown. You're in Melbourne as well. We're finally feeling like we have some freedom. How's how's it all feeling for you? I've been feeling great. Yeah, for the first time in a long time, I think that um, kind of re-emerging energy is really contagious. The Mm. sun is out. Um, I'm remembering what life was like before (laughs) a little bit. And I'm like, wow, life is really good. (laughs) Um, It's crazy how easily you adapt. I've been reflecting on how easily humans will adapt to situations. Um, But anyway, I'm remembering what life used to be like and um, being getting out in the garden, having a long weekend. So yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And it's like, we'll never take this for granted ever again. Although I was just lamenting 
to you, I did go to the beach with my son this morning and it was just horrendously packed. So I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe we can bring back the five <laughs> kilometers back. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. <laughs> uh. Now Jess, with all my interviews, I start them the same way. And that is wanting to know what childhood was like for my guests. What was childhood like for you? What was it like growing up? Um, I had a very, very fortunate childhood. I think I'm a social worker now and, um, I just, yeah, I know how rare that is. And, um, yeah, a lot of privilege in terms of having very supportive parents, um, really beautiful values around equality, uh, connection to nature. And, um, they gave us, they gave us a real voice. I think we're allowed to be really independent and outspoken when we were younger, um, and nurture a lot of independence. So we lived on a farm, which I'm actually at at the moment. So I've been, um, I've been shacked up here during COVID because I think the city and just being in a small space was a little bit too much for me. So it's, I've been very lucky to come back here and, um, yeah, just, we have horses, we're a bit of a horse family. Oh. I never rode very much. Um, I got bucked off a lot, so that's not my jam, but they love horses. Um, and yeah, and I'm, and I'm the eldest of three girls. So, which meant that I'm like, Quite, I was probably quite bossy, although I like to think that that was really just leadership potential coming through, but quite bossy and, you know, taking the reins and being a little, as a lot of eldest children are sort of like being a co-parent sometimes, you know, taking care of your little sisters. Um, so that was beautiful. And yeah, just being in this property, I was able to like climb trees and make mm. potions and um, invent things. And yeah, I was quite creative as well. So a lot of space to be creative. Um and yeah, pretty, that pretty sounds curious. heavenly. Oh, I love the sound of that so much with, you know, with that kind of upbringing, then I find it even more interesting that you found your way into social work. Then it just feels, I don't know, like you've almost got, had your little like community there growing up. You'd almost feel isolated from the kind of work that you probably see in that line of work. What, what drew you to that? What made you wanted to go into that line of work? Um, it's a good question because a lot of my colleagues in the sector and when I, you know, and when I was studying as well have, um, you know, had quite traumatic experiences growing up and then use that in their practice and come back to social work because they had a social worker that helped them or they want to make the system better. Um, and I felt a little bit odd, yeah, because I had this quite idyllic childhood, but my family have very strong values around giving back. So my mum works, she was, she was a, um, a primary school teacher, but she was also writing children's books. And uh, when I was in primary school, she realised that there wasn't any uh, what she now calls body safety education, which is wow. prevention of child sexual abuse education in the school. And so, you know, being of someone that says, you know, stand up for what you believe in, she went into the school and said, like, why is this not a thing? And she was actually rejected by the primary school and said, we're not teaching that stuff here. You know, it was just bodily autonomy. Like your body is your body. No one else can touch it kind of stuff. And um, so she actually went and wrote a book and formed a publishing company herself because no one would publish it with my dad. And so they published this book, Some Secret Should Never Be Kept. And it actually was phenomenally successful and incredibly powerful, I'm sure, in a lot of homes. So it's like through a fable, beautifully done. Um, But I guess through that process, I learned that a lot of people, she was an advocate, a lot of people coming to her as well with stories and experiences. And I learned that the world is not so kind um, as in my little bubble. And I saw her giving back and I thought, 
that seems very rewarding and beautiful and, and I want to be a part of that. And she always said, you know, if you have so much, you always say to give back, you always say to be very generous. Um, and I feel like the stability from my childhood allows me to take on a lot of stuff and be able to cope with it. Um, but it wasn't a direct journey there, I must say, to social work. I actually um, studied photography originally and, and pursued my creativity first and foremost. But it's funny, my mum always says she knew I'd end up in this, the line of sort of work that I do now, um, but I did not. But yes, that's, that's kind of what was happening in our family and, and why I guess I came to that work. That's, I find that so interesting. So with your mum writing that book and I'm sure the experiences she might have gone through through children that she was teaching, did she then come back and I'm so fascinated with teaching children resilience and I know there's a line with, you know, not exposing them to too much, but, you know, still did she try and share with you what it was, you know, what other, what the childhood was like for other children and kind of, I guess, mm-hmm. instill that level of, appreciation and gratefulness for your life compared to you know what other young kids were going through absolutely I I think she always did an age appropriate way of course like I wasn't super young when she started to first tell me about these experiences I I was probably teenage years when it was more like an accurate description of what was happening Mm -hmm. but there was always awareness that there is suffering in the world there are young people that are not as fortunate as you um and that you know lead with kindness always and um yeah so that was I guess that is an important part of resilience, mm-hmm. I guess, understanding what what the world is like, slowly putting the pieces together and not setting false expectations mm-hmm. because no matter what our lives, even how fortunate we will have huge ups and downs. And I think I try to incorporate that in my children's books as well. And she's always in hers that um, that's a part of life. And I think that that's a really key part of developing resilience is just mm-hmm. having that understanding so that when something does go wrong, we don't sort of fall apart or, wonder why it happened um where we're able to to carry on Mm. um but yeah she's been she's quite good at um reminding like I've been living there at the moment every day she's telling me something that she's grateful for (laughs) it's beautiful like she's just so grateful (laughs) and um that permeates into your thinking it's Mm. you know all of that thinking is a learned behavior and she had a very um unfortunate childhood actually quite a traumatic childhood with her mum had a um my grandma had a really terrible mental illness and she was quite a lonely child, but had an incredible sense of resilience and now has trained herself to be so, so grateful and then really wanted to pass on that thinking. So I'm really, I'm really grateful <laughs> for, for that way of thinking. Oh, but, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. Everything you're saying now is that kind of thing that I'd love to, I try to do with my son as well, you know, just allow them to, you know, he's so lucky and so privileged in so many ways, but also have an understanding of how lucky we are to have this and be able to do these things. And other people don't. And I think just hearing you talk about your mum and your upbringing in that way, I hope that my son one day says similar things. I think it's a really beautiful way to bring up a child. So that's probably why I was so interested in that. Now you wrote your first book, Love Your Body, to encourage young people, especially young girls, to embrace who they are. But before we get into that, and I want to hear all about that, can you take me right back? What was your relationship like with your body? Did you 
You know, did you just grow up loving your body and feeling part of, you know, as women, we're taught just that we fit in exactly who we are. No, not really. (laughs) Yeah, no, quite the opposite. Although I know we start that way. Mm. So we start being like, look at these cool bodies and I can do things. And now I'm walking and I'm climbing and I'm moving them and I'm, um, you know, celebrating the jiggle or the squishiness of a body um, and, and enjoying that until you learn that that is not, what you're supposedly meant to be that's not the mold that you're meant to fit into and I think I developed that awareness probably when I entered primary school so I guess I came out of the the home bubble Um, I'm interacting more with other young people and um, adults and I I noticed pretty early on that people would point out my physicality so I'm from a tall family on both sides Um, my dad's six foot three my mum's about five ten and so I'm I'm six foot now as a fully grown adult so but I was always ahead of the curve as well so I was always quite tall um and not a sort of um spindly kind of you know what the traditional model kind of tall would be I'm quite proportionate and strong and so broad shoulders and things like that and so because I was outside of a mold I guess even though I don't think that there is a mold or normal but I was sort of sitting somewhere on that external in in the perception of others it was pointed out to me all the time so people would be like oh you're so tall and they just even before saying hello to me would tell me that Mm. and what that did was you know at some point in your life you realize that other people are looking at you and that you, you that gaze of the external gaze comes into your life at some point and for most girls it's around eight for me it was probably around six mm-hmm. and that was purely it came into my realm because it was pointed out so much and I realized someone is looking at me and they're making a judgment about my physical body and whether that is a good judgment or a bad judgment it's still a judgment and that means possibility for scrutiny and critical thinking and all you know all the above so um when that started was when my body image issue started when I realized that I'm being told and people are watching me and I sit outside of the mold. And the last thing you want to do as a young person starting primary school is to not fit in, you know, Um, you, you so desperately want to be um, connected to your cohort and belong. And so that just followed me right through primary school, right into high school. And with each year, I guess it increases in intensity because you're starting to look at magazines and you're like Dolly and stuff. And you're starting the comparison trap is getting more and more. And um, then, you know, male attention is coming out and who's it going to? And um, all this kind of stuff sends you these subconscious messages. They're never usually direct messages. They're always subconscious that you pick up as you're making sense of the world about which bodies are, you know, put on a high pedestal and which aren't. Um, And so I realised that mine wasn't very high on that pedestal. And so in high school, I was, yeah, trying everything to fix that. So we're told that there's a pedestal and then we're told it's actually our individual responsibility to meet this um, standard. And so I was, you know, dieting and um, exercising, a lot of crash dieting, tried everything um, because it was just sold as a solution. And under all of that was just a desire to want to fit in mm-hmm. and want to be considered um you know, you want to be considered beautiful and attractive as well. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also for women and girls, it's like the only thing that they're told to be. Um, And so that weight put on, you know, our worth, everything ascribed to sort of how we look means that the effect when you don't have a 
good body image and I don't know, I don't really know a female that has had a good body image growing up personally. Mm. It's a huge, it's a huge toll and a huge weight. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of, it wasn't until my early twenties that I was like, I've had enough. Like I want to yeah. go to the beach and enjoy it. I, this is my body. It's not changing through all the crash dieting. It is like to stay the same pretty much. Um, and I was, I was studying at the time, but I had some amazing friends who were just being really curious about the world. They're like, why is that the way it is? And I guess through reading, through finding amazing like body positive influences on Instagram, I started to unlearn all these stories I'd been told about whose body was the most valuable and what bodies should be and also how much worth is ascribed to your body and how you look. And it was very empowering. And you know, with each week, month, I started just to peel off more and more to the point where, you know, I was having like pleasant thoughts about my body, which was revolutionary for me. Like I sometimes I hear them come up like, wow. And yeah. um, don't get me wrong. I still have my down days sometimes, but I, yeah, I, I guess I learned to love being in my body again and accept mm. myself and, and start rebuilding um, what made me me. And mm. it was a beautiful process and I felt very empowered by that. Um, but what, what made me quite angry was that I'd had to do all this work. And I was also very aware at this time that that work in itself was a privilege to have access to sort of unlearning the time and energy and the resources um, to sort of have to do that work. I thought, I looked at these little girls that I'd see on the street. I'm like, why do you have to go through all of that? All of that unnecessary suffering for what and maybe to one day unlearn it all like that's just not fair and so I got very angry and I was studying um gender at the time which can make you know gender studies can make anyone <laughs> go a bit crazy <laughs> and so I was just like oh my god all these injustices and anger is a weird thing to spur you into writing a children's book but that's kind of what happened <laughs> I'm going to write a kid's book. I'm going to use this anger. Yeah, yeah honestly, because like that anger. It makes it, sense it, it though. Yeah, look, it, makes, it, it was a very practical decision. It definitely wasn't like a furious thing, but I remember reading an article about labiaplasties, which I think you're aware of, you know, the surgery um, externally in the vagina to sort of nip tuck it essentially. And um, yeah, on, on women under 18 and like these surgeries were on the rise and they were like, one, very expensive, very invasive, but also very dangerous. And I was like, wow, like this pressure, it will not stop sort of monopolizing every part of our body until we've just tuned and tweaked and restricted and punished. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's endless. It will never end. And I thought that's so sad. They're not even 18, not even out of school, out of an institution. And they're already um, got to that point that, you know, it's hurting them enough. And I also grew up with sisters, a friend with a chronic eating disorder. Um, and so it was really surrounding me, like the effects, the very real effects. I think body image is often treated as a superficial issue yeah. because it's external, right? And it's like, oh, you're just being vain or something. But I saw the real life consequences um, of that eating disorder. And when I was actually writing the book, my sister lost her best friend to an eating disorder and she was oh just 19. God. Far out. That's horrendous. And yeah, that also made me inc obviously incredibly sad because um, I'd grown up watching this girl grow up. But also incredibly angry because it was just, it didn't need to be that way. Mm. It didn't need to. And so I guess all of that, 
I was I was writing a book at the time, but I remember thinking like nothing will stop me. <laughs> I, was like, I will do this. Nothing, nothing will stop me. I, I have to bring this book into the world. Um, the reason it was a book was actually a beautiful, my best friend Han, we were talking about this article, um, ranting and raving as we did. And she's like, we need to do something. I'm like, I know we need to do something. Like, what do we need to do? And she's like, why don't you write a book? And I was like, oh yeah. And honestly, up until two weeks ago, I would never have considered that. Um, because my mum wrote books and I think I was trying to be different than my mum, which a lot of young women end up doing, I think, which is, you know, she's amazing. Why would I want to be different? But, you know, I'm forging my own path. And so I'd done photography, but it wasn't, it wasn't serving me anymore. It wasn't bringing me joy. I wasn't liking it. And I'd always identified with it, kept me safe, actually. It kept my confidence high um, mm. so that I could sort of get through high school. I was reluctant to let go, but I eventually just said to myself, I'm closing that door. I'm letting go. Photography is no longer my identity or my role. I'm just open to whatever. And so when she said that, I was like, yeah, why not? I, I am up for anything. I, I, I don't identify with anything anymore. Um, and so, yeah, went and just asked my parents who were in publishing, how does one self-publish a book? And um, <laughs> went from there. Gee, that's handy. <laughs> yeah, it all makes handy. so much sense. Totally. What can be done? You know, I think, you know, everything you've said about this, this book is about trying to is change the narrative, I guess, in the way that young girls just save them all that time and effort and trauma, as you just said, from six till, you know, twenties and even beyond. I know people who are in their thirties and still have really, you know, um, uh, unhealthy relationships with their bodies. What can be done to change, help young women change that narrative when it comes to how they're thinking about themselves? I think we all have a lot of work to do and there's so many ways that you can make the change. So a book is one, it's like an, yeah, it's a narrative. It's an idea that we can plant and a conversation that we can have. Um, but we can also start with our own individual actions to support the young women in our life by role modeling. So choosing not to talk um, in a droggy way around your body or other people's bodies. Um, diet talk is insidious. It's I've got to get my body ready for the beach. Like you don't already have a body that's perfectly capable of going to the beach or um, you know, the, the beach body or um, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to be good, like attributing morals to food where they should not be. Like food is neutral. Food is, you know, to fuel us and also for pleasure. And there is nothing wrong with that. Um, so it's just how we speak about food in front of others. It's about when we see a young woman for the first time, what do we say to them? Mm. It's almost always, well, look how beautiful you are. You've lost weight. Look at your hair. Look at your dress. It's like, hey, how are you as a person? What are you interested in? What are you doing? What are you loving? What are you disliking? What do you think about, you know, whatever's going on in the world? But it starts so early with girls. Yeah. Like it just, it starts so early. And I even catch myself out because it's a part of the social script. Mm-hmm. We don't think about it. We just see and we say, and we don't say it with boys. We might say, oh, that's like a cute little bow tie wearing a little trousers or whatever. But we think, oh, what's that cool toy? What are you playing? What yeah, are you doing? Totally. Um, yeah. It's about action. And, and we speak to them even in a different tone. So it's like patronizing, sensitive, oh, I'm a little tough boy, you know, like it's, we're already conditioning them into bodies and behaviors. And so if we can catch ourselves out and say, you know, what do I really value about this young woman? Like if I were to write a list of my top favorite things about them, it wouldn't be their body or what they look like, but in the way that we engage with them, we're telling them that that same external gaze is coming through. I'm watching your body. I'm looking at it. Something like you've lost weight as a congratulatory thing can be the cause of an eating disorder because someone said, Oh my God, before they were looking at me, laughing at me, cause I was 
bigger body and that's bad and now I have to keep this going like I if I put it back on yeah if I put it back mm-hmm. on they're gonna notice because they noticed before so true exactly so we think we're doing a nice thing mm. by complimenting and we don't even think about it but we could actually be the cause of what someone's pain and I think we've just got to get better at watching our language and and what we value and what we talk about like that's that's where it all permeates from um and also like voting with our dollar if we're spending all our money on trying to look and be in a different body in a different way um consumers or you know people producing stuff are going to keep making it for us and they're going to keep pushing that narrative and and so it is up to us individually um and to have conversations and that's also where that internal work comes where it's like how did I form my relationship with my body? Where did this come from? Are these beliefs my own? Um, like, who is this serving? All is these kind true? of questions. Yeah. <laughs> and is I think, this true? Is this even true what I'm saying about myself? And what do you hope young girls get out of it? Oh, I hope that at a time when I know a lot of them are starting to go, oh, my God, is my body the right body? Um are my legs long enough? Are my arms in it? Like all this kind of stuff that a reassuring voice can be like, hey, you're okay exactly as you are. And there are all different kinds of bodies and you are so much more than your body. And I hope that that resonates with them and it's a comforting voice because I've written it in my voice and I wrote it. My mum gave me this advice because I had no idea how to write a book. And she's like, you know, what would you say to a young girl in front of you? So it's essentially me speaking to them. And um, I hope it sits on their shelf so that when those negative thoughts inevitably do come up, that they have a comfort guide to come in. And there's also some practical things they can do to take care of themselves and their bodies when they're feeling a bit low because, again, resilience, and, and we need to give them the tools to, to yeah. take care of their mental health because I, I do a lot of um, speaking in schools and this sort of inner bully, I call it, which we all know what that is, it's our internal narrative in our minds. It's often telling us some very untrue and unkind things and they all have it like a really early age in primary school, grade two, grade three, grade four, they're like, oh, I know the inner bully. And so they're probably, you know, often I didn't tell my parents about my inner bully. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of them don't because we have shame around them um, and it's because of all the things unsaid. So also I hope this book starts some conversations with parents and children and also gives them a new way of talking about bodies because a lot of them go, oh, my God, I didn't know how to talk about it before because I've never heard this kind of language. It's really Mm. simple language, but it's like talk about your body for what it can do, Mm. not what it looks like. Our bodies perform um, incredible functions. They allow us to experience all these beautiful things our lives have to offer. And um, why wouldn't we talk about them through that framework? Mm. And when I did the research for this book, it's the most sort of powerful way to nurture a positive body image is to look at your body through a functionality approach. So what can it do? Yeah. So, yeah, I hope what it else, does all of those things. <laughs> what else do you notice when you go and, which I think is so amazing because I feel like writing the book is such a massive part of it, but going and speaking in schools and actually having that really grassroots approach where you're actually face-to-face with these girls is such is just such a huge thing and it has the real um capacity to make some real change what do you notice also there when you know you said about that they say they have their that inner bully voice what else are they telling you um i also should say as well i think we're talking a lot about girls but but boys do feel it as well mm. and um the rates of eating disorders around young boys are rising i think they have a whole other set of pressures which my latest book speaks to as well so i have i have got them covered because um i know yeah life yeah. can be really tough for the boys as well and so like when i'm talking often, often in co-ed schools yeah get yeah yeah they get forgotten. Yeah. So my latest book, Be Your Own Man, is just about breaking down that masculine stereotype and the body image pressure because theirs is very much about 
be like tough and strong and stoic in your behavior and in your body. And they're really connected. The masculinity and the the, the toxic parts of masculinity are really entwined in their body image. Um, So when I go in and I talk to them, they are all just like all of us, I guess, all of our little inner child. We're just wondering like, do I belong? Do I fit in? Am I enough? as I am. Um, and I'm just trying to reassure them that they are, that no one is, that no one is perfect. Um, and just expose them to some different ways to be. So, you know, unfortunately, like I am a white female and I'm not in a particularly larger body, even though I am six foot. So I'm not necessarily, um, someone really different for them to see, but through the illustrations, they get to see that. And through the images that I show them and through the discussions we have, we realize that, all we have is diversity Mm. Um, and that, you know, when we look around us, we see all this difference and that is normal. That's the only thing that is normal. Um, And so just to have that conversation facilitated is really important, I think, because often we forget to have them Mm. or a young person comes to us and says, hey, I feel like I'm really, um, maybe they heard the word fat be used in a negative context and they say, hey, I'm feeling really fat. And you go, no, you're not, sweetie, you're not fat. No, no, no. Mm. And it's like, you know, what that says is that if kids are saying they're fat, they don't necessarily believe their parents saying no. And th- and by saying no, no, you're not, you've also said that being fat is bad, usually mm. in the way we react because we know fat is weaponized. So instead we say, hey, everyone, what we could say instead is, hey, everyone has fat on their bodies and fat is not a bad thing. Fat is also neutral. Um, and we all have different amounts. And, and it just sort of like it um, takes the pressure and the harm away from that word. Diffuses so, it totally, the situation. Yeah. Rather than that toxic positivity of, no, 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 like you're fine, you're perfect, you're beautiful as you are, it, that almost throws dirt on the feelings of someone and then they feel mm. ashamed of feeling how they feel or that the next time they might be feeling down, they don't know how to speak up from it because so it can just spiral into this, I don't know, in this place where they don't know, they don't feel safe to have an outlet, I suppose. It's so true. And that's the shame. It's mm. we've accidentally trying to do the right thing, trying to reassure our child, trying to make them feel good and safe, have created shame and stigma. And now they're not able to talk about it. And so these things just grow under the surface and they don't get to let them out. And then they manifest into all kinds of stuff. You know, maybe they're like really sad or they're really angry or something physically happens. Like, you know, it, it can come out in all kinds of ways, but ignoring or repressing emotions is never good. And that is actually the most common thing I see with boys. When I talk about, I talk about self-care with them a lot. And I was like, how do you take care of yourself? Like if you're feeling a bit sad, or you're feeling angry, like what do we do to tend to that feeling? And they all say, I distract myself until it goes away. Like wow. all of them. And this is probably like grade five and six that I was working with that oh, were doing this so every session was saying, I ignore it until it goes away. And I'm like, well, and the girls are saying, some of them are saying ignoring it, but a lot of them are saying, I write about it. I yep. tell someone about it. I um, go for a walk with walk. my dog, like yep. really healthy coping mechanisms that they've developed because they felt they could. But the boys are like, I play sport or a video game to distract myself. And like yep. sport can be good, but if the goal is to just push it away and not yep. let it sort of ruminate and, and, and come out how it will, it gets stored in the body. It builds up, it comes heavy and it's really hard for us to carry it around. And I've actually sort of, um, my illustrated a beautiful job of illustrating what that looks like when you're carrying 
carrying around this huge weight of emotions. But each time we do a self-care activity, like we let a little bit out. And and we as adults, like I personally need to do more of this. So I'm, you know, actively sort of internalized a bit of misogyny and mm-hmm. and not trying to not be sensitive or cry too much, all these things. Um, and I'm having to unlearn that and let them out in healthy ways because yeah. it it yeah, it hurts our body, it hurts our mind, it hurts our relationships. Um, and it's very sad that kids that early have have, have picked that up when we you might have assumed that they wouldn't. Yeah, that's what's so startling to me out of everything you're saying that we my I have a four-year-old son and I bought the Be Your Own Man. So we've I've read it to him. And um and that was your follow-up to love your body. And as you said that before, is that you realize that, you know, sometimes young boys and young men are forgotten in this conversation about body image and self-care and um, you know, that's such a common trend. And I even find that with my son, there's, there's so much out there for girls and there's not that much for him. Um, so it's really on me to bring him up in a way that he is really in touch with his feelings and emotions and feels safe to express himself. But, you know, that not everyone has that kind of thinking, I suppose, because of the conditioning and from, you know, what their dad might've been like and their dad's dad might've been like, why was it important for you to bring young men into this conversation? Um, I think, as I said, so love your body was born out of this frustration and, and what's holding girls back from achieving their full potential essentially. And, um, and I'd lived that experience. And so it was sort of the natural first, next thing um but I always had wanted to, to write something for boys but I didn't want to make this carbon copy of love your body because I knew they had a different experience um and the other event in my life that's really shaped my work shaped my work is um the loss of a of a friend at when I was 18 so he he took his own life mm. when he was 18 and none of us saw it coming he had never expressed any um any form of sadness or mental un- unwellness, um, it was just a real shock. And it's, you know, at that age of 18, you're about to leave school and everything's looking really rosy. And then the reality of the world really kicks in. And um, I've really carried, yeah, that that event, that, that was my friend Ben, like I've really carried that with me my whole life on top of, of Sophie's passing as well. And so when I was writing this book, I was thinking about him and the, the reasons that he felt he couldn't talk to someone about um, what had happened for him, you know, what was going on. Um, he just felt he couldn't reach out for help. It was, it was at that crisis point that, yeah, that, that, that we couldn't do that. So I was thinking about him. I was also thinking about, you know, toxic masculinity mm. or the, the, you know, this sounds like an extreme word, but it's true, the hatred of the femininity or the perceived weakness of femininity hurts women and boys. Yeah. So when boys internalise it, they then externalise it onto women um, and girls then internalise the idea that they're lesser than and perhaps deserving of that. Um, and so, you know, gender inequality, if we want to call it that, hurts everyone. And so it was important for me, you know, not just from looking out for the young boys, but looking out for everyone in the same way that Love Your Body's looking out for everyone um, to approach this topic. And, um, you know, some people might say, why didn't you do it in a gender neutral way? And my real goal with this book and the reason I've used gendered language in it is because they are very aware of that gender stereotype yeah. and they need support breaking it down. Like I want to get to that ideal world where we don't need to say, you know, use gendered language and, and, I think, yeah, it's just, it's just so, so important. So I kind of wanted to do it because 
um, a big value of mine is achieving gender equality mm-hmm. and um, and showing the strength in the feminine so that boys respect women, but also so that they respect the feminine parts of themselves mm-hmm. because we all are made up of feminine and masculine. And when you think about it, feminine qualities are some of the most beautiful, the most powerful, and they're not optional. Like mm-hmm. it's like connection, um, sadness, joy, compassion, empathy. These are like the most valuable traits that we have as humans. So when you tell one, you know, gender, one sex that like you don't get to have any of those things or exhibit them, so much harm is caused for everyone. Um, So what we really need to show is like how amazing is empathy and compassion and vulnerability. These things are wonderful. They are not a weakness. They Mm. make us stronger. Just look at your center of dirt. Like women are killing it right now in COVID times and, and women are the ones leading a lot of the time, not all the time, a lot of the time with those beautiful qualities of like empathy and compassion. And so I just like, I wanted boys to see that those are not things to be ashamed of, that they're like wonderful, beautiful, powerful things and that um, that they should embrace them because they start, yeah, they start cutting away those parts of themselves early. Um, and, yeah, as I said, it just comes hard for everyone. So I was thinking about them. I was thinking about Ben, um, but I was also thinking about how we're going to achieve gender equality maybe in my lifetime, I don't know, but um, how do we start working towards it in a very um, real and tangible way? Yeah. I find that so interesting what you said that, you you know, you said people asked you why you did make them gendered. And I, I think it is really important because I think if I picked up a, a book, probably with the same content that wasn't geared towards he, you know, he pronouns and be and males and masculine, you know, my son might grow up and think, oh, no, that's a girl's book. That's for, you know, for other for girls to read but if it's mm. specifically says he and him and boys and men and males it kind of brings them in a bit more and go well wait this someone someone who's written this is saying this is a conversation that I should be a part of that this mm. is something to do with me it's not I can't just pass it off which I think is so easy for men to do sometimes as if it's not their responsibility yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like be your own man. It's like, here's looking at you. This is how you yes. can get involved um, for yourself, for other people. And um, what the be- the beautiful feedback I've been receiving is that by saying like even the first line is like, hey, boy, like, hey, there, you boy, whatever. It's like they're, they're in because yeah. they are looking for someone to speak to them and their sort of um, wonderings about their identity. These yeah. kids are, are wondering, what does it mean to be a boy? And they're not wanting to say it because it's embarrassing, but like, what does it mean to be a boy or a man in this world? I am genuinely looking around me at the role models, at the TV, at the school to find out. And a lot of their world is going to be reinforcing a really harmful idea mm. of what it means to be a man. And so I was like, we need something to counteract that messaging. Talk to them in quite an intimate way. In a book, mm. your, your bedtime, you've let down those shields of school perhaps that you've had to put on and you're like, oh, my God, someone's speaking to me. And mm. um, had like beautiful parents say that they've kind of teared up reading it because they can empathise with their son. Um, but yeah, and, and beautiful conversations come out of it, like vulnerable conversations that could be really transformative and, and hopefully prevent some harm down the track and, and give them the tools to navigate what is a complex world for men and, and for everyone. 
That that was my next question, actually, which flows beautifully. What kind of impact do you hope this kind of messaging, love your, uh, be your own man has on the next generation, but love your body as well. And we haven't even discussed that you have me time as well, which is a book about (laughs) teaching young people about the importance of self-care. What do you hope all this messaging has on, yeah, like the next generation that my son who's four, that will be an adult one day? Oh, yeah, I just I just hope that they can carry even if it's like one sentence or one little message from the book with them in their lives. And I think what I do with books is planting a bunch of seeds. And I hope that seed, that thought, that idea grows into something um, really transformative or powerful, helpful for them later in their life. So, yeah, I just hope it brings a little bit more kindness, acceptance in the world, acceptance of others, but also acceptance of yourself. Um and yeah, it just plays a part, I guess, in achieving that kind of safer world for everyone. Mm. Um, we've all got to do our own little bit. And, and I hope my books play a part in that. Yeah, I love that so much. Do you think you'd be where you are today in writing the books that you are uh, if you hadn't been through what you had been with your body image struggles and, you know, what you've experienced, with, as, as you said before, with your friends as well, all that kind of horrible trauma that you've been through. Do you think you'd be doing what, you are, what you're doing today without all that? Oh, definitely not. I was thinking this morning in preparation for this podcast that how um, my body has really shaped my life. Um, and so the experiences I've had in this body as a result, you know, of social pressures in the world has, has, shaped, has shaped my work. Um, and I think that's, like, I'm very grateful for that experience because I get to now hopefully, yeah, use what I've learned so that others potentially don't have to go through it. Um, but also it's, it's given me really meaningful and fulfilling work. So, um, we all have, you know, suffering is, um, unavoidable as a whole. We all have it. Um, I guess it's just how we, how we utilize it and use it when we, once we've worked through it, um, to make the world a better place. So, yeah, yeah, definitely wouldn't be here without it. What do you, you know, I often often think this to myself, imagine how much more free we would be, especially as women, but men as well, if just body image wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't even a conversation. Mm. Imagine the things that we'd achieve and the things that, you know, the, the, the space in my brain I would have had mm. over my years if it just wasn't even a thing to think about. <laughs> that That is it. Like I'm just, I've got my book here and I can't remember what it says, but it's, it's got something that says freedom in it. And that was really, we put it in the last second, but it was really important to me. Yeah. Freedom is loving your body with all its imperfections and quotations and being the perfectly imperfect to you. And I think that like, that's it. It For me, I did my values recently and my top value is freedom. Mm-hmm. And I just think I, and I, that exactly what you just said was going through my mind the whole time. What could I have created? Uh, where could I be had I not um, been held back? Just all the time and energy mm-hmm. and brain space and emotional, like it's, that's not nothing. That's a lot like that, you know, you're carrying with you each day. And I think, wow, particularly when it comes to girls and body image, what could we have seen from them and mm-hmm. who could they be or where could they be had they not had to just, yeah, sort of, uh, the word, just sort of push their way through the jungle of pressures yeah. and, and body untangle. Yeah. Untangle their yeah. way through it. Absolutely. Now, Jess, I finish all my interviews in the exact same way. And that is wondering what the advice of the Jessica now would give to the version of yourself, a past version of yourself that might've been going through a dark, difficult patch. And if you could let her know, you know, one day it would all be okay and you'd be doing what you're doing now and changing the world how you are now Mm -hmm. too, what would you tell her? 
Oh, I think I'd tell her that a lot of the things that make her different or that she doesn't like about herself will become her superpowers in her um, later in life and that you wouldn't trade them for the world. So, yeah, that's what I'd tell her. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. What an awesome conversation. I've found it so enlightening. I feel like my, I felt like a bubble, you know, one of those bubble um, head things that people have in their cars because I was just nodding at everything you were saying. <laughs> And I can see we we I can see we've got video in this podcast. Obviously, I'm not really video, but um, and I could see myself just like a bobblehead to everything you're saying. And I'm <laughs> that you were like, could she stop nodding her head at everything? But it was because it no, just I love it. Word, it's very encouraging. <laughs> it was just so, yeah, I felt like your own personal hype girl on the side, just like cheering you on. Um, but it's just yeah, I found every word so enlightening, and it got so quick. I can't believe we're speaking for 45 minutes, but oh, wow. um. It's such an important conversation for me as a mum to have and for other, you know, for me to try and share this kind of content in the best way I can with other mums as well because it's so vital. So thank you for everything you're doing to buck the norm and try and make it a better world for our kids. So thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having (laughs) me, Elizabeth. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lemonade. I'll pop links to Jess's Instagram and her books in the show notes. As usual, if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe, five stars, and leave a positive review. It'll help others find this content who perhaps could really benefit. Until next week, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.